house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. He likes girls. He didn't act like a boy. Wonderful. Take me. Oh, God, what are you doing? Well, what can I say? Sexy. Hilarious. <laughs> Get ready for Julia Roberts, Tim Robbins, Kim Basinger, Sophia Loren, Forrest Whitaker, Danny Aiello, Stephen Ray, Sally Kellerman, Tracy Ullman, Lyle Lovett, Linda Hunt, Terry Garr, and Marcello Mastroianni in an all-star cast. It's an outrageous whodunit. This is fruitcake time. Ready to wear. Okay. With um, his tiny little nipples. <laughs> Daniel Brohl's nipples were like in his armpit. Save it for the conversation. Actually, that where was that last week? Truthfully, uh, well, I don't know. Where was where was Daniel Brule nipple corner <laughs> last week? <laughs> Our new weekly feature, Daniel Brule's nipple corner. How are Daniel Brule's nipples doing today? Well, it's snowing, so <laughs> they migrated north, you. and they're fully in his armpit now. <laughs> It's daylight savings time, so you know what happens to, to Daniel Brühl's nipples. And We've consulted time. the farmer's almanac, and by January, <laughs> they should be on the back of his neck. Wait, is it too late for me to add this in to the record? Maybe not. I don't Maybe know. I go back. Oh, anyway. Anyway. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows Judy Dench, Maggie Smith, and their seaside cottage don't need a handsome stranger washing up on their shores. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Chris, how is the hot stepper treating you today? Has he has he come around this uh, morning? I still love him like that. Well, let's you know, let's get to what that is. I is don't good. know. It's truly one of the great early '90s musical mysteries. Is what is the that in "Still Love You Like That"? Much like the, I would do anything. I I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Maybe it's the same that. Maybe it is. Think about that one, listeners, as you ponder the rest of this. If truly... any enterprising listeners want to do an I Would Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that, and a Here Comes the Hot Stepper mashup together. Oh. Yeah. Like that, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that, slash Here Comes the Hot Stepper Glee cast version. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Who would have done the Glee version of Here Comes the Hot Stepper? That would have been like Mr. Shoe and like the boys, right? That would have been like, mm. it would have been one of those episodes where like the girls are off doing their thing. Well, Kevin like, McHale. It's like girls versus boys. Is it Kevin McHale? That's the name of the actor. The hottie who like is. The character gay was in a wheelchair? And, yeah. Yes. Uh, he fully would be doing Here Comes the Hot Stepper. Yeah, that's true. Because that's they true. gave him all of the rap stuff. That was kind of his his uh, his his vibe on that show. That's true. Yeah. Oh boy, what <laughs> what a shout time. out to the Glee Wind, by the way. God, we should all go listen to that right now instead of talking about Predator Porte. No, we shouldn't because 
I'm kind of super psyched to talk about Predaporte. I am also. very psyched to talk about this movie. I cannot believe that we went there. Okay, so let's just let's just get it off the bat. I it's strangely like the most requested director that we get from our listeners on Twitter. It's been a it's been a minute, but like we've gotten a lot. We've gotten of a lot of Altman. Yes, for us to do an Altman movie, and naturally, being the psychopaths that we are, our first Robert Altman movie is Predaporte. Okay, well, here's the thing, because we've never gotten a request to do this particular movie. We've gotten a lot of do Altman in general. We've gotten yeah, a lot late of late period Altman. Doctor T and the Women. You should do Prairie Home Companion. You should do Cookies Fortune. Like all of those, perfectly viable candidates, and we may end up doing those in the future. But, like, I am so glad we picked this one because this is the one that stands out in my head from the 90s of being a definitely had Oscar buzz because it was a, you know, late December Mm -hmm. release and it had so many stars in it. And, like, back then, that's how I thought that Oscars worked. I thought the Oscars were, like, a star system rather than, like, what Mm -hmm. I know now, which is, like, a much more complicated, like, twisty kind of thing that involves directors and narratives and reputations and whatnot but that back in the day i was just like julia roberts and tim robbins and lauren bacall and 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 all these people like all of these like great people of the moment i was just like well you know how can it miss and then it was opening in december when all the oscar talk was happening and this was of course 1994 which was the pulp fiction forrest gump year which was the year that radicalized me as an oscar watcher you truly cannot imagine if oscar is going for things like uh, Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump, how in the absolute hell Predaporte could have had stood a chance anywhere. This misses this misses from both angles, from like yeah. the wholesome, like baby boomer appealing Gumpy angle. It totally misses, and then it also misses from the cool like, points, cool gritty sort of like narratively, um, like chopped up kind of. Pulp Fiction. Oh, this angle. is narratively chopped up. We'll get it. Well, sure, <laughs> but like in a whole different way. But the the, the reinvention. Thing... Right, 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 right. But the wild thing is, it's not like Altman was out of style at this point in time. No, he was this arguably... follows a very specific Robert Altman Oscar trajectory, which is why I'm glad that we chose this as our first one, like exactly. separately, because it's two lone director nominations in a row for him, in a with row. no best picture nomination. Right. But before we get into that, because we're gonna like we're gonna have a whole lot on Altman and we're gonna have a whole lot on the movie. But before we even like get into the movie, I do wanna like dedicate this time to talk about Aini Kamozi's Here Comes the Hot Stepper because like It's it was such a thing at the time. It was so of the most. It's honestly, it's the most timely thing about the movie. We'll talk about the fashion thing as well, because, like, it it came in a very interesting time for, like, fashion and pop culture. But, like, this song was so of the moment. This song reminds me of Criss Cross 
and all those like Euro dance hall stuff like Snap or um, Real McCoy, Crystal Waters or Real McCoy. Yes, totally. All that kind of stuff. Or um, uh, what was that? You're unbelievable. Like that's oh, all, like all that. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's the, I mean, that's from the Coyote Ugly soundtrack. I should know. Right. Is and like even EMF? like CNC Music Factory, EMF. That's exactly yes. who it was. Uh, you're unbelievable. But yeah, um, CNC Music Factory. Like even like Proto Labouche kind of stuff. Oh, and Labouche. Labouche is fucking awesome. If you want to like get your party started, like do a karaoke night and have somebody put in "Be My Lover" and just be like, "This one, everybody's got to sing it." And like, it's. Anyway, we're oh here comes the hot stepper. So like, it appears in the movie so briefly, like it's just like in the background of like two scenes or whatever. Like as you're transitioning from one to another, and it's mostly there to like suggest that like oh Forrest Whitaker's character is like young and hip and whatever and cool and, like, and cool, right? He's like the cool designer. Fully, my but, like film bro complaint about this very gay movie was like it took two hours for me to get to here comes the hot stepper in this movie. I am pissed. It takes a long time to get because to this like the trailer. But, I don't even remember the the trailer having dialogue, but I very much remember like this trailer existing to me because of "Here Comes the Hot Stepper" and like also, how I'm, cool the movie looks just from using that song. I'm almost positive that the music video was one of those like it was a music video that has just like scenes from the movie in it. Yeah, like, and it's like him it. with dancers behind him. Basically, I remember the music yeah. video too. Also, the lyrics are really funny because, like, <laughs> that thing where it's just like, I'm the lyrical gangster. But, like, all the, like, after every line, the background's, like, murderer. So it's just, like, it's, it's so, like, the whole thing, if you really listen to it, it's all just about, like, um, killing people. Like, he's, like, yeah, he's, like, money to burn. Like, I've got to, like, hide the evidence, whatever. It's just, like, I'm killing people. But then it has the second verse which is so funny, Which where he goes, I gotta quote some lyrics. It's, no, no, we don't die. Yes, we multiply. Anyone test will hear the fat lady sing, which, first of all, what an awesome, like, hard song that references the fat lady sing. Um, <laughs> act like you know, Rico. I know what Bo don't know, which, by the way, is the most dated thing about anything we're gonna be talking about today, is a reference to the Bo Knows Nike campaign for Bo Jackson from the <laughs> early 1990s. Like, you can be as much of a lyrical gangster as you want to, but, like, you're referencing a Nike commercial, which is, like, kind of part and parcel of what Pret-a-Porter is giving you, Fully which is. is the crassness of the fashion industry, and yet, by almost every indication... Altman doesn't really know what to do with these sort of like throw them against the wall observations about fashion. It's a lot of the things that we kind of 
revere him for, which is sort of shaggy plotting, like overlapping dialogue, a lot of characters, a lot of whatever, a lot of stars. And like, that's all very cool. But like, there's such an emptiness at the center of this. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just kind of we'll get into like how it's a a mess and like the shitty version of shortcuts. But okay, you mentioned the Nike commercial, but in that same verse is also a like a very specific dating for this song and it's the we don't die we multiply you cannot tell me that is not a baby's kids reference oh i didn't even think about that wait what what's what's the chicken or the egg thing there what came first baby's kids or i will look it up but i am positive that baby's kids was before this but baby's kids was also from the stand-up thing so but i don't know if the song was in the stand-up but did that maybe get borrowed from something else? Because that almost sounds like a horror movie tagline, like Critters or something like that. I mean, Bebe's Kids is basically a horror movie because these kids are so <laughs> like poorly behaved. But God, I love Bebe's Kids. Uh, Bebe's Kids was 1992. Oh, wow. Okay. Boy, the animation of 1992 from like that and Cool World were like really throwing me for a loop. Yeah. <laughs> that, like, just before Disney. Another Kim Basinger performance. Um yeah, yeah, I but did. The Robin I, typed, Harris I typed in. Bit was around for forever. Yeah, before Baby's Kids. So, and I guess the the phrase "they don't die, they multiply." Okay, yeah. good for you. Um, we're going Jay. to some places already. In this, we episode, also. I, I want to say just because we are dedicated to our craft, I want to make you this promise that we will. Declined to use the American translation of Pret-a-Porte, which was released in the United States as most. It was either just ready to wear, or it oh, was. That's a coin in the swear jar. Every I time know. you say the American title, every time you say the American title, we're going to put a coin in the swear jar because really, we're you know we don't want to coddle you, we don't want to, to to baby you. You guys are adults. You guys know that Pret-a-Porte is translated to. Uh, ready to wear, if only because you've become conditioned to the 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 wonderful lunch lunch takeout restaurant Pret a Manger, which is translates, of course, to ready to eat. And we're you know we're a cosmopolitan podcast here. We understand that you know what uh, Pret a Porter means. So it was a it was a not proud moment, I think, for American culture when it had to be released in the United States under its English translation because. Miramax didn't think that we were smart enough. Miramax and honestly, Philistines. Well, yeah, it's Harvey, like, and so it bombed anyway. You, and it bombed anyway under its American title. So maybe Pret a Porter might have given people a little bit of a curiosity factor that they would have bought a ticket to see what this weirdly titled movie means with all these, you know, big stars in it. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to be talking this week about, as we said, Pret a Porter, directed by Robert Altman, written by Robert Altman and Barbara Schulgasser, starring Deep Breath, Julia Roberts, Tim Robbins, Kim Basinger, Marcello Mastriani, Lauren Bacall, Forrest Whitaker, Stephen Ray, Linda Hunt, Tracy Ullman, Lyle Levitt, Sophia Loren, Richard E. Grant, Anuka Mee. Rupert Everett, Lily Taylor, Terry Garr, Sally Kellerman. It is truly uh, a murderer's row. Lots of people who had worked with Altman previously. Lots of people who had worked with each other very previously. I love that this movie is a stealth 
crying game reunion of Forrest Whitaker and Stephen Ray. I was going to mention that. That it's like it's very much you can tell what uh, independent cinema in the early '90s that Robert Altman was watching. I was like, where is Natasha Richardson in this movie? Because he has fully been like, give me the crying game cast in this. Miranda movie. Miranda Richardson, Natasha Richardson. Oh off, yeah, well she uh, can be there too. I well, spoke too fast. She- Yes, um, may she rest. Uh, this was also uh, part of the snapshot of Julia Roberts's marriage to Lyle Lovett. This was like the one thing that they got accomplished in the interim of their getting married and they're getting divorced. Yeah, Lily Taylor's back with him right after Shortcuts. I'm trying to think if anybody else in this cast had been in Shortcuts. I think she's maybe... Well, I guess maybe... Was Lyle Lovett also in Shortcuts? Anyway. Yeah. Um... um... I mean, not to mention the amount of, like, other cameos. Cher has a cameo in this. Um, yes. But, like, fashion designers show up in this movie. Like, Thierry Mugler is in there. Christian Lacroix is in this Jean-Paul movie. Jean-Paul Gaultier. Yep. yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, and also, did you know that, um, I think I got that from the credits, maybe, that the Richard E. Grant's character, his fashion line, was designed by Vivian Westwood. Oh, Wow. Which is pretty cool that they got like Vivian Westwood to like design, Not, like show her own stuff or have it credited to her in this movie. Right, right, yeah, exactly. So like that's pretty cool. Obviously, Tim Robbins is uh, was the star of the player, so he's back again. And had Kim Basinger been in an Altman movie? Maybe not. I don't think so, but we will definitely talk about Kim Basinger. I kind of love her um, in this I movie. Legitimately but... love her in this movie. Uh, this premiered on December 23rd, 1994, an early Christmas present for virtually nobody. Um, this was a big old bomb. Critics hated it. Critics really, and it's so funny because, like, Altman's not the kind of director who you think critics were, like, waiting to fuck up. You know what I mean? It's not right. like the knives were out for Altman, but this was such a disappointment to people who were riding on the high of the player in 92 and the shortcuts in 93. And then this is like the very next year. And I think this was just like a big old letdown. And we'll talk about some of the, the reviews that it got, but before we do Christopher file, I'm giving you the most unenviable task that we have had during the course of the 69 episodes, nice, of this podcast, which is... This is episode 70, right? Is it? Yes, I believe so. Well, then I've got it miss... I I have it mislabeled. Hold on a second. Let me fix it. Either way, I don't think we did the nice in our Ladies in Lavender episode, so we will take it for now. All right, (laughs) Chris, uh, the most unenviable task from the 70, a little less nice... Um, uh, episodes of our sounds podcast. like something to figure out. Am I right? <laughs> Somebody figure out what <laughs> and please don't at me be, about what it and is. And don't ever tell me. I don't, don't ever tell me what it is. I don't need to know what a seventy. Don't is. tell me, baby girl. I don't need to know. <laughs> um, you and your fucking Mark Anthony. I'm gonna taunt you forever. Um, Brutal. All right, but well, I'm gonna torture I'm also, you because I'm, I'm gonna also make you. Stalling. I'm gonna make you do a sixty second plot description of Pret-a-Porter, which is <laughs> the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. <laughs> 60 seconds to describe this plot. All right, are you ready? All right. 
60 seconds, Pret-a-Porter, go. Okay, Pret-a-Porter, it takes place during Paris Fashion Week. It's a, like, large cornucopia of shallow people in boring stories. Uh, mostly the film is anchored by Kim Basinger as Kitty Potter, who is a really, like, severely out-of-her-depth reporter interviewing all these fashion people with, like, really dumb questions and, like, has no access into it. But, um, like, that's her story. You also have the story of Tim Robbins and Julia Roberts. They are like uh, they're both journalists he's checking out of a hotel as she's checking in and he refuses to leave and like he's kind of an asshole but still they have like an affair and just spend the a few days in their robes fucking um and uh there's also Sophia Loren whose husband is like the fashion week guru basically he chokes on a ham sandwich but people think that he's uh was murdered by Marcello Mastriani who she tries to have an affair with but they, he falls asleep um and then Anukami uh, uh presents uh, Simone Lowe she uh, presents basically just naked women at the end of the movie and is like groundbreaking. All right. Is it though? That's the thing. It's like, like first of is, all, that scene is two hours long at the end of the movie. It's, it's just this parade it's a of real thin, time, naked women that is like. It's a real time fashion show. It's just like it, yeah. it goes on forever. It's also, it is both obvious and like self conscious. It's just, it's. It's like we I get the emperor's new clothes metaphor but like it's just it's, it's so also full of shit too, because it's like, yeah. this is the original fashion, this is what is beauty, and this is like, all women are beautiful, and it's like, these are all a bunch of seven-foot skinny ladies, and it's supposed to be like, a praise of the female form. But I Absolutely also feel not. like we're meant to see through it, but also, but like... That's not even interesting because it's just like, like going straight to like naked bodies as like the the zenith of fashion or like the whatever the omega of it all, and and it's just like okay, well like you've gone to the end of the line, you've managed to like you know read to the end of the book, and it's just like it's that's not interesting to me either. This like you know the fully extreme of just like no clothes at all, and it's just like okay, well now we've you know deconstructed everything all to hell, but it's just like it's so obvious and it's so yeah. I think Altman really struggles to find anything to really say about fashion especially fashion at that moment in time and like especially things that like haven't been like said in like um, right over decades and such like this is what a lot of the critics said of it at the time that like it's not good satire because all of it is so like you said obvious and like not just obvious but boring like this most of this movie aside from the things about it that are fully insane is really really boring well i think yeah i think it fails on two levels i think it fails on the level of not having anything to say about its subject which like that's one thing i want to jump back to because like i think fashion in the early 90s was an interesting sort of like moment but like he also fails on the fact that like altman's movies tend to be these multi-character affairs or at least a lot of them are these multi-character affairs with like lots of things going on and like nashville is obviously like the great example of that but like nashville never felt like 25 movies happening at once nashville felt like one movie it's one coherent thought with a lot of different like moving parts this feels like 25 different movies at once this feels like there's like two or three like 60s euro caper movies like Mm -hmm. you know somebody's killing all the great chefs yeah, of Europe it, or whatever. It's like, we have Lauren Bacall for three days, so we film those, and the, the her scenes she's, in those three days. 
Bacall is the most wasted, I think, of all of the all, all of the great actors that they get here. Yeah. Some of the actors get more to do than others, and she gets very. She's basically like presenting Lyle Lovett to like different people throughout this. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> Which but, like, is insane. Sophia um, Loren and Marcello Mastroianni get to have their sort of like love Italian marriage, style yeah, reunion, marriage and Italian and, style, right? Um, they they recreate the strip tease from. Remind me of that movie. I have it written down somewhere. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is like this is their something like their eighth or ninth movie that they ever did together. I think this was the last movie that they ever did together, which is like very interesting. Like, but like they're in a totally separate movie from the movie where Linda Hunt, Sally Kellerman, and Tracy Ullman are these three like fashion editors competing for Stephen Ray, and then he like humiliates them all, and it's this weird like slapsticky movie about like sexual harassment and 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 you know bad shit. And yeah. Um, and then Julia Roberts and Tim Robbins are in their own little separate movie. That, and it's like, a nightmare. It's so boring to me. But, like, that was the thing. If you read the reviews, like, all of the reviews were like, well, Tim Robbins and Julia Roberts are in a very entertaining little, like, portion of the movie themselves. And I'm like, are they? Are they? That whole relationship. He is, like, a complete asshole to her and, like, refuses to leave her hotel room. And I'm supposed to think that's cute. And I'm and supposed she's... to be like, oh, that's sexy when they end up fucking for days and she's thoroughly uninteresting like there's just like i think the both of them are just like very dull and boring and then you get the stuff where like forrest whitaker is putting on a show and like richard e grant's putting on a show and they are like having this love having affair, an but, affair like, and the their lovers are also chicken. having an affair but right but like the movie's too chicken to even like show them making out up close like they have this weird you know that thing in like comedies especially when like people start making out but really it's just they like they like you see the back each other of about Forrest the Whitaker's head. Like, it's like that thing yeah. where you're pretending to make out by yourself and you put like your hand on the back of your head and like, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it looks like that. It just looks like you're mashing your face into your hand. And There's also just... like the Robert Altman thing where it's like you have these separate stories, but then they interconnect in interesting ways and unexpected ways. That never really happens in this. No. And when they do, it's the most like ancillary non-important characters like you see um uh terry gar and danny aiello are married and he he wants to be in drag i guess and then they go to a bar and lily taylor like like, photographs them there's a whole sequence in a drag yeah there's like a cross-dressing convention or whatever happening during fashion week at this like restaurant right and then like lily taylor who like is kind of a anti-fashion activist maybe like I don't know what's going on with her character. She's like very ill-defined. She's sometimes she's a reporter. Sometimes she seems to be like really stridently anti-fashion. Yeah. And then she's like covering this this like cross-dressing convention. And then like Danny Aiello, who like the movie kind of surprises this on us because most of the movie it's we see Terry Gar shopping. She's like gone to Fashion Week to like go shopping and also to like continue this affair that she's having with Danny Aiello. And all of a sudden the big like pull the rug out from under you is like, all that shopping was for him because he's going he's a cross dresser, yada yada And it's just like uh okay, A fine. But then like that's also very right. early nineties like understanding of what either I couldn't understand if it was supposed to be drag, if this was supposed to be trans people. Uh, like it's, it reminded it's me a lot of problematic. Uh, I don't know. I, feel I, like... I mean, like it wasn't neg- it wasn't a negative light. It was just like not. But I think in terms of just like what I think we were depicting, it, it reminded me a lot of like Casa Valentina or like yeah, um, yeah, 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 like that kind of a thing. And just like that's fine. Um, but like that, then like Lily Taylor like 
he ends up chasing her out because she took his camera or something like that. It was a whole. But like that's weird like the little that's like, like the only time thing. that things like combine or converge right. really yeah. i mean i guess you could say stephen ray because he's the fashion photographer and like you mentioned there's the whole sexual harassment thing where he's it's three editors from different major fashion magazines competing to get him like as their in-house photographer right and he right. degrades each one of them via he photograph like, right he like comes up with these like elaborate scenarios to like trick them into um, debasing themselves for his services. He gets Linda Hunt to, like, beg him beg down on, on her, hands and knees. her knees. And, like, he gets Sally... Like, Sally Kellerman sort of, like, comes on to him and, like, he takes photographs of her with her top off. And he's, like, has having sex with Tracy Ullman and, like, starts photographing her. And so it goes from this, like, escalating... Like, you know, the, the stuff with Linda Hunt you could pass off as, like, impish. And he's, like, he's obviously, like, a jerk. But, like, then it becomes, like, oh, no, you're taking, like, unauthorized photos of a woman while you're having sex. Like, and, like, just, every like, word out of his mouth in the whole movie is just, like, absolutely horrible. Um, yeah. But, like, yeah, and maybe Kim Basinger, because, like, she has the, that character has the conceit of, like, it gives her a reason to talk to a lot of these people. Um, she's just very funny in this movie. She's I think. so funny. Every one of her scenes is funny and smart and like I, I think, think she's more cl- impressive in this than she was in Ali Confidential. I was going to say like I am a noted uh I hate that performance. Like I will give my comeuppance and say like Kim Basinger would be on my ballot this year. She's so funny. There's so many line readings that I wrote down when she's she's uh interviewing the three editors, Kelly Kellerman and Ullman and Linda Hunt and she just goes, "Welcome to Paris, girl." And it's just like this sort of like <laughs> utterly unbothered, just sort of like she has no idea how in over her head she is or how like ridiculous, ridiculous she sounds. She has this like wonderful, like very like thick Southern accent and she like mispronounces every third word. Like her pronouncing Terry Mugler is very funny. Yeah. And she's like Mugler. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, it sounds like this incredibly broad, like, Southern Belle Telecaster performance, but it is actually funny. And it. Oh, yeah. It's the closest thing that I think the movie comes to with having a unique perspective on the fashion industry, because yes. it's less about the industry itself and, like, how we view it, I guess. And she has all these interviews with, like, real life fashion designers or like Cher she has the interview with Cher who like and it's so funny watching Cher (laughs) react to her because you can tell that that is like not I I mean I would guess that that is not so tightly scripted where I feel like there was probably room for um, Cher to be surprised by some of the things that Basinger was asking her because like the reactions are very funny Cher also a Robert Altman veteran from um, come back to the five and dying Jimmy Dean Jimmy Dean Um, but there's I can't remember who she's talking to but i wrote down the the conversation about poof skirts about how poof skirts are back and <laughs> and and the woman just goes we'll be poofed and poofed and poofed again and will you be poofed goes, will and you be poofed like, and she goes i doubt it no <laughs> <laughs> it's like kudos kudos to kim because like there's it's a relief you, every time she came on it's screen. a relief i think that's i think that's the right way to put it so going back to our discussion about uh, when we talked about Avengers Endgame uh, a while ago about ha- it having the most Oscar winners of any movie that we could think of, this one lines up seven Oscar winners, although four of them, yeah, four of them 
came after the fact. But it's still, as you watch this movie, there's seven Oscar winners and then eight others who were Oscar nominees, which is pretty impressive. I think this movie is yeah. mostly like it's it's the rare actor who like poor Lily Taylor hasn't gotten um, an Oscar nomination yet, which is like too bad. But, is it uh, only eight that were nominated? Eight it seems who, like it could even be more. So by my count, your Oscar winners are Sophia Loren, Julia Roberts, Tim Robbins, Kim Basinger, Forrest Whitaker, Linda Hunt, and Cher. And then the ones who were nominees but not Oscar winners, Marcello Mastriani, Anuka Mee, Stephen Ray, Richard E. Grant, Lauren Bacall, Sally Kellerman, Terry Garr, Danny Aiello. Yeah, I guess that's it. Like, I don't think Lyle Lovett ever got, like, song nomination or anything like that. No. I don't think Tracy Ullman's ever been nominated. I don't think Lily Taylor's ever been nominated. Or Rupert Everett. Like, some of these people could have at some point, but, like, they yeah, weren't. Yeah, yeah. Lily Taylor feels like that could have happened. Yeah, I mean, Rupert Everett probably should have been nominated for My Best Friend's Wedding. He's so good. Right, 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 right. It's weird that this he... is, like, several years before that movie, and that movie, like, is what launched him. Well, in terms of, like, Julia Roberts, this is in, like, the... This begins basically the bad stretch of movies, right? Where it's like her mid-90s before My Best Friend's Wedding Mm -hmm. was rough. Like, it had, like, Mary Riley, which notably she was, like, picked apart for. This is also the year that I Love Trouble came out and bombed. This was was a really rough patch for Julia Roberts' career, for sure. And then she had, like, smaller things and, like, Michael Collins, which I wish we could talk about. And um, everyone says I love you. Yeah, well, and that was that. Yeah, that was a few years later, and that was like inching closer to because my best friend's wedding was like a comeback for her from this essentially like this period she's in right now. But like '96 right. was like crawling back a little bit. Like I think I don't think she was quite as knocked around for Michael Collins and everything. Everyone says I love you than she was for. I Love Trouble, and Mary Riley. And this, weirdly, that's why it was a little surprising to see, like, Ebert singled her out for good, uh, for being a good part of this movie, or, like, David Anson, I think, in Newsweek did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, because I just don't, I don't like that part of the movie at all. No, I hate it. It's so disconnected from everything. This movie is so long, and you could fully lob off a good number of these stories and theirs feels the most extraneous because they're supposed to be journalists but they don't do anything like she literally watches fashion week on tv because she doesn't have clothes um he's a sports reporter who is like asked to stay there to cover this murder plot that is happening which is like also so stupid i really 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 hate that we have to pay attention to this thing where like sophia loren's husband gets like dies accidentally by like choking on a sandwich but he was also involved in some weird like espionage thing and marcello mastriani's character is like a russian spy who used to be involved with sophia loren and he runs away from the scene of the crime and he jumps into the sen and like so he might as well also have like one of those joke mustache nose like glasses things it's very inspector clouseau when he's around right right like he's very much it's that vibe and but none of the rest of the movie has this vibe, so it's like watching a series of sh- like Pink Panther short films, like running through this movie, and it's so it never it never mixes well at all. And like so, anytime Sophia Loren ducks out of the Fashion Week stuff 
to deal with him because he's, you know, her former lover or whatever, and they do the striptease and yada, yada, yada. But, like, it all feels like she's ducking out of that to go, like, be in a different kind of movie. And uh, it's just very frustrating. So, like, and then, yeah. like, so every once in a while, like, Mastriani will cross over into the other stories where he, like, ends up hiding in the same closet that Sally Kellerman does when she's trying to get the goods on Stephen Ray. And... Mm-hmm. It all that felt like it could have been more. Like, you know, if you want to do that, then like have Sally Kellerman really like go full slapstick or something like that in in a scene. But like, they don't do that. It's both too restrained and not tightly plotted enough. I don't know. It's it's kind of. I mean, Robert Altman obviously has. You know, his style is more improvisational and, like, it's kind of an organic thing. But, like, there's always a central conceit, right, Um, for certain things. Like, you know, Nashville is centered in the country music scene, but it's also kind of about America at the time. Um, Like, Prairie Home Companion is obviously based on the radio show, but it's also a big meditation on death. Yeah. Um and like dying art forms. This one it feels like they said we're going to set a movie at Fashion Week and didn't think of it any deeper than that. Like there's no I mean I well, guess you could say they're making some type of farce, but there's no like yeah. Uh, there's no perspective in a way well, that's like interesting the way that Robert Altman movies are interesting. Like it just this... more so feels like somebody's trying to rip off shortcuts in a fashion setting. Yes. And Shortcut isn't so tightly centered upon, like, a thing. Like, like mm-hmm. you, you said Nashville with the country music scene. Or, like, Pret-a-Porte very much seemed like it wanted to be the player but for fashion instead of Hollywood, right? And Shortcuts is the other way, where it's just, like, it's not a scene that we're, I guess, I mean, beyond the fact that it's, um, who was the author? Raymond Carver. Was, I was going to say, Carver. it's like, it at least feels, like, connected because it's all based in this same authorial yes. voice, kind of. So it's like right. it's Carver and Altman. But it wasn't this, like, big idea idea. And, like, it's interesting because fashion in the early 90s was at this really interesting point. This was sort of, like, the sort of... I, I remember this area era as being very, like, Jean-Paul Gaultier was a big, like, emblematic of this era, or, like, obviously, like, Christian Lacroix, Christian Dewar. Oh, that was the other thing I wanted to mention about the spy plot, is that it begins with Marcello Mastriani, like, whatever, doing some spy business, and then walking, or buying something at this Christian Dior storefront, and uh-huh. walks out of it, and it's like, oh, you're at the Christian Dior store on Red Square. And it's just, like, <laughs> that I found very funny. It was just Well, sort of they just, like, also, like, spy each other with like this they're wearing the same tie and the exchange of it is so bizarre that i was like are they cruising each other is this right. some secret signal what's going on it's what's just you, you're wearing the same tie fine but so back to like the fashion moment of the era so like it's i feel like at this time fashion was still pretty like not unknowable but like exotic right where like yeah. you know the designers were all very like larger than life sort of personalities and with like, creating these, you know, wild creations and models. This was sort of the era of the supermodel. This was, you know, obviously a few years after the Freedom 90 video, which I always sort of mark as like uh, a, you know, a huge marker in the era of the supermodel. Obviously um, Naomi Campbell's in this movie, Christy Turlington's in this movie, and that 
but also that era of the supermodel was also like they weren't accessible that it wasn't like they weren't supermodels because they were so accessible and knowable they were these like larger than life figures and i think this is the era right before fashion becomes incredibly democratized through a few angles i think obviously project runway came a good bit later but like Mm -hmm. project runway came on the heels of mtv's house of style and um e doing like fashion reporting like red any all the like joan rivers red carpet stuff and ultimately leading to things like fashion blogs like go fug yourself or um tom and lorenzo and stuff like that all these things that would eventually bring this sort of you know unknowable uh exotic fashion world right down to street level and so this feels like an an, um artifact of an era where we talked about fashion in a way that we just don't talk about anymore and it would have been interesting to see altman sum up that era as something and it just it doesn't come to anything yeah it's i don't know um, i mean agree disagree what you seem you seem no i agree i'm just trying to like that's the thing like the there's such a consensus about what doesn't work in this movie but it feels like it it runs a little bit deeper than that like i don't know if it feels like his loose like improvisational style is very chaotic in this movie and like unclear with how it wants to approach these scenes in a way that like if there's chaos to like shortcuts it's very intentional but it does feel like a contained movie like someone is steering the ship that's what's so amazing about his movies and this is just fully off the rails Um, i will say though like i didn't hate all of this movie there are parts no 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 no, no, i didn't and that's why i find it so confounding was i'm like it's not awful it's not good it's in this like weird sort of like and i guess because the things that are bad about it are so bad but like the middle ground and the good things about this movie are actually interesting especially as like like you mentioned the stuff with the fashion industry but like watching it now is also kind of like you're watching an artifact right like this is so very specific of its time and is 25 years down the line and it's like kind of it feels like a time capsule in a way that's like it's Can own mention, kind of funny. <laughs> the one thing I liked about the Julia Roberts, Tim Robbins storyline was it's a pickup from, because uh, Julia at the beginning is like running around like a chicken with her head cut off. I think at the airport, her baggage got uh She got left misplaced. it at the bar. Right, that's what it airport. was. So she's trying to get like Terry Gar to help her and Terry Gar is like wonderfully uninterested in helping her out. And she's like, I don't even know how to say baggage in French. Julia says this and Terry Gar just she's goes, like, oh, bagage. It's, it's, it's just bagage. It's like, it's baggage, but it's French. It's just bagage. And so the rest of the movie, when both Julia and Tim are on the phone trying to track down their luggage, they keep saying bagage and it's funnier every time I hear it, so like I feel like that's like patron saint Terry Gar sort of gifted that storyline with something funny. I don't know. <laughs> I wish she had more to do in this movie. She's so funny when you know she gets. I would have loved to see her Gar. mix up with like Tracy Ullman or you know Linda Hunt or something like that. Yeah, I enjoy like Tracy why Ullman does she just bit. shop? It. Well, okay, so this is like peak Tracy Ullman, right? Because this would have been when she had the HBO show. She was nominated for a Boston Society of Film Critics Award this year for three performances. So like she was being, she was in a lot of stuff. She got nominated for this. 
Bullets Over Broadway and I'll Do Anything at the Boston Film Critics. I'll and Do yet, Anything. Yes. We could totally do an episode on I'll Do Ugh. Anything, but what a disaster. What a disaster. But yeah, you're right. She had the HBO show. She was, you know, she had launched The Simpsons by this point, like several years before. And yeah, this was like really like peak time for, for Tracy Ullman. And she's she gets to walk around with that Amy Sherman Palladino hat for a while it's um she she strikes a good luck it's funny you would never think to i think that's one of the cool things that altman does in this is like some of the casting is really interesting and like you would never really think to cast tracy altman as this like fashionista right because that's not really her vibe but like she works out so well in that role well you put her in that hat and it makes complete sense yeah totally i loved linda hunt as well i wanted her to have more to I do after linda hunt she yeah. has such an interesting um, presence. She's always so. She made complete sense as a fashion editor to me. Of course, because she sense. looks like Edna Mode. Like that's like <laughs> I guess that's probably no coincidence. Maybe they probably I think you know maybe put in. Well, she was modeled after Edith Head, which I suppose right. Linda Hunt looks quite a bit like Edith Head. Also, my first experience with Linda Hunt and as an actress was as a judge on the practice. I think that was huh? the first thing I ever saw her in. So I always sort of like imbue her, imbue her with all of this authority. Cause like the practice had this like really interesting, um, collection. They're sort of like the good, the good wife in that way. And that like, they had a rotating cast of judges and they were all great. And one was like, I'm pretty sure one was Deborah Mooney from Everwood. And one of them was Holland Taylor. Obviously Holland Taylor won an Emmy for playing a judge on the practice, which was like really interesting because everybody thought that Nancy Marchand would win it that year. Cause she had just, no wait, that was the first year of the Sopranos, which everybody thought she'd win. And then the next year she was posthumously nominated. Anyway, she never won for the Sopranos, but like Holland Taylor, did and um but linda hunt was like my favorite judge because she was the most like level-headed and authoritative and she was always the one to like put dylan mcdermott in uh in his place it was wonderful so i've always found her to be this like great authority figure so i obviously defer to everything she says in this movie and she's always correct her Mm. character is from what is her i wrote down all the magazines she's from l and Tracy Ullman is from British Vogue, and Sally Kellerman is from Harper's Bazaar. Sally Kellerman, of course, another Altman vet from MASH. Yeah, so truly, I do like that. I do like the whole like Altman family album aspect of this cast. And it's a really fun cast to just sort of like, if, if, if this movie has stayed af- kept afloat by anything, it's that you're happy to see these actors when they show up again, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Even if their storylines are like, but, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like, the Kim Basinger thing, in terms of her Oscar, it's very much like she was rewarded as, like, the member of that cast throughout the narrative of that movie's Oscar trajectory. Yes, because they couldn't find a way to, like, narrow down the men into just one and you for her as a performer i i just wonder like maybe i'll go back and read some more of these reviews like how that performance was received at the time it is broad but like it's smart and funny in the altman smart and funny way even though it's broad and like i kind of wish that like maybe that conversation for her could have happened for this movie obviously because i love the performance but like i hate that la confidential performance so much kim basinger's career is a really interesting one because I feel like she was 
like good things were always happening for her. I think she she'd gotten a Golden Globe nomination for The Natural back in like 1984, and that was one of her earliest performances. And yet, I feel like she went through most of the 90s with people thinking she's not a very good actress. And I think part of it was like, I don't know, like. Vicky Vale. It really works that she's not like, that good of an actress for this performance. Though. Right. Well, that's. I think that's the thing. But I think like through most of the night, from most of the eighties and like early nineties, it's like I think like nine and a half weeks got sort of like hung up on her for a while. Where all of a sudden she's like she's sexy, but is she like does she have the goods? Can she like pull it off? And like so she's in movies like Final Analysis and Cool World and even stuff like. Um, the real McCoy with, uh, I think that was her and Alec, right? She like made, mm-hmm. no, maybe that's the getaway I'm thinking of, or maybe I'm thinking of both of them. Anyway, but it's Some a lot of them of these... blur with Sharon Stone, even. Right. And I think that's another actress who like that same kind of vibe where it's just like, oh, she's sexy, so we don't really like respect her as an actress. And I think she is. I do think Kim Basinger is a very limited actress who's capable of being very bad in things. I think she's really bad in like Eight Mile. Yeah. Um, but like, I do think that reputation as being kind of a a bad actress really plays into why she's so good and ready to wear because she's really able to lean on that kind of in over her head, fish out of water, doesn't really know what she's doing, relying on not cards. much depth. Right. You see her more and more I mean, sort like, of not like to be a jerk to Kim Basinger, but like yeah, like she reads as someone who's not very deep. Yeah. In and this movie. And and she's like, and more and more as the movie goes on, you see she's reading off of cue cards and like, and being, um, she has these. It's 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 a really interesting vibe she has with the people she's interviewing. But also, as you can see, she's like getting on their nerves, and more and more you can see people like trying to rush through interviews with her, and it all pl- and like off. her like trying to hide her tension building through like each interview. And then hers is the one storyline that really pays off at the end, where she, um. At finally, what is the phrase? She <laughs> it's the it's the naked to. women where she's it's like, like drives her over the edge. She's like, what? It's are like we it's even old and new. It's the new and the old. The yeah. old in the new. It's some shit like that. It's so funny. <laughs> but then at one point, she just like she like drops a mic and she just goes. I think this is after they're off uh, camera or whatever. Yeah. But she goes, "This is fucking fruitcake time," and I'm like, "That's so." <laughs> the delivery of that line is so good. Like, God bless it. I got to remember when we do our next um, uh, awards from the from the movies that we've talked about next year. Oh, she'll be on my ballot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, absolutely. She's really, really funny. Um, I liked Forrest Whitaker in this a lot. I think he had a good handle on the sort of like uh, cavalcade of words and adjectives that you have to use to describe Mm -hmm. your fashion in this world. Like, so early nineties Forrest Whitaker is sexy. Yes, absolutely. That's why I wanted to see him like making out with Richard E. Grant in a more you know clear fashion on that subway car. Yeah. <sighs> Sigh. Well, what else? What do you think? I like that they used a cranberry song when they did the nude runway. <laughs> that is that is very true. That was um, fun. There was also a lot of Bjork in this movie. I thought there the was Bjork. Um, I was trying to catch some of the other songs. Like it's just kind of a a nineties house music soup. Yes. Um, absolutely. Again, a very interesting era, an interesting point in time. Um, again, it all sort of like wraps up with like, you know who would have been the right person to cameo in this, much as I love Cher? Like, Madonna in this movie would have made so much sense. Yeah. 
because like this was I think of Madonna a lot when you obviously when you think of Jean Paul Gaultier when you think of early '90s sort of like you know Emperor's New Clothes fashion stuff like Madonna was on the cutting edge of a lot of stuff and at this point 1994 was sort of getting backlashed against for that right this would have been mm-hmm. the erotica sex book aftermath right 1994 yeah i want kevin costner to show up (laughs) and kim basinger to interview him what he thought of like the christian lacroix show and he's like oh it was neat it was neat (laughs) (laughs) kevin costner no he was in enough trouble at this point in 94 with uh trying to get Waterworld made yeah Oh boy. oh boy, what a time. Maybe where time he drinks his own piss. So I want to talk about Altman for a second, because obviously we mentioned earlier that this was him coming off of a pretty unprecedented, I don't know if there was, I mean, if you go back into the early years of Oscar, things happened a lot more sort of loosey-goosey. But like, yeah, especially two, when it was like handle, when it was basically studio. The studio system, handing. right. But yeah. like two straight years of being the lone director nominee, which... I it's I want like it's less of a thing now. Obviously, we're coming mm-hmm. off of a year where we did have a lone director. Where well, remind me of the uh, director's uh, name? Pavel Pavlikovsky. Pavlikovsky, right? For um, Cold War, was the second person who's been a lone director nominee in the more than five Best Picture nominee era. Mm-hmm. The other one being Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher in 2014. So, like, it is possible to have somebody who is nominated for Best Director, but their film is not nominated for Best Picture. Uh, The director's branch has become increasingly, I think, idiosyncratic in Mm -hmm. some really interesting ways. And I think if you had... If these were top five Best Picture fields, I think you would probably have had a lot more of the three for five match between picture and director, which, like happened rarely before this. I remember 1995 was a three for Mm -hmm. five year where both Ron Howard and Ang Lee had Best Picture nominees but were not nominated for Best Director for Apollo 13 and Sense and Sensibility. But I think if you look at... I'm trying to think of, like, what might have been. Like... Well, it used... At first, it was, like... When it expanded to the 10, it was like, these that are nominated in Best Director are probably the top five Best Picture nominees, right? Like, in terms of the most likelihood. And it feels like it has moved away from that, like you're saying. Right. Like, the past year, so the past year, the five Best Director nominees were Quaron for Roma would have been a Best Picture nominee, I'm probably sure. Spike Mm -hmm. Lee for Black Klansman, same. Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favorite, probably... And then I mean, I think 10 it, nominations, I think that's safe to say. Yes. And then you get into, like, Adam McKay for Vice. I don't think Vice would have made the top five last year. And then Pawlikowski, obviously, Cold War didn't make the top nine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's probably a three for five year. The year before, Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, yes. I think Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird. Lady Bird is probably a top five that year, yes. Mm-hmm. Jordan Peele for Get Out, maybe. Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, maybe. I think Get Out would have been in a five. You think so? Yeah, I mean, like, that was the movie that never went away. People absolutely, it had a lot of fans. I think that's probably true. It was one of the big stories of the year, I think. Yeah, you look at, like, 2017, your your Best Picture nominees are probably, I would say, Shape of Water, Lady Bird, I think Get Out, you're right, I think Three Billboards, and probably Dunkirk. 
Yeah. So then Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread is going to be your lone director, which is like a classic. Because it was so late. It's a classic lone director type, which is um, it's your most auteur-y auteur. You know what I mean? A lot of them, if you go back through the years, that's why I think the phenomenon of the lone director was always so interesting is because mm-hmm. if you go back when during the like top five era, you're talking about people like Robert Altman for Shortcuts and The Player, um, Christoph Kislowski in 94 for Three Colors Red. Um, I'm trying to go through Milos Forman. For Both David Lynch loan director nominations. Right. For, um, for Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that was one. 2001 was a year where there was a three for five because um, Lynch is nominated for Mulholland Drive. Ridley Scott nominated for Black Hawk Down. Neither one of those were Best Picture nominees. Um, Spike Jones got a Best Director nomination for Being John Malkovich without that getting a Best Picture nomination peter weir for the truman show was one adam agoyan for the sweet her after like it's a lot of these things they're a little bit artsier they're a little bit closer to like maybe a foreign film is going to break in or something that is a little bit um or i would say it's like sometimes they might be the type of movies that are described as chilly in reductive terms sure yeah like i think uh, i think you mentioned the 20 yeah I I would say like Denis Villeneuve for Arrival would have been one. Yes, I think that's that's very very possible. But I think you look at a lot of these like foreign foreign directors. Almodovar for Talk to Her, Mireles for City of God. Um, yeah, or like even like Paul Greengrass for United ninety three, which was again mm-hmm. not. Chili is probably not the word I'm going to use, but like difficult, certainly. Like that's a that's yeah. a tough movie to watch. Julian Schnabel for the it's more daring choices, perhaps maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like they're you know, for lack of a better term, sort of like artsier, like more uh, towards the edge of like artsier choices, and that makes sense when you're talking about the director's branch nominating their own. They're going to be a little bit more um, auteurist in in sensibility and. It's interesting. I'm glad we still have that as a possibility, even if it's a once every five or six years rather than once, almost pretty much once a year was was the norm during the um, 90s and mm-hmm. 2000s. But I don't know. What do you think? Where are you at? What are, where are, your, what are your feelings on The Lone Director? I kind of wonder if, and I mean, I think I'm saying this at the same time that I think like a Pavel Paul Pavlikowski nomination is going to become more likely where it's a lone director in the expanded Best Picture lineup. But I kind of wonder if partly why we see less of that, A, because there's just more movies being nominated for Best Picture, but because, like, Best Director in recent years has become, like, this is the creative or difficult achievement we are honoring, and then we are honoring a movie separately. Yeah. Like, because we're getting splits and the actual wins as well. Yes. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Something to do with the fact that we're getting... We got one last year. Yeah. We're we're getting less of it. That's interesting. Maybe. Um, That we're getting less loan director nominations, I mean. Right, right. Like, the whole concept of what people are awarding is changing. Yeah, I think And, like, it's two different thoughts. I also think when you're dealing with a much sort of wider pool of best picture possibilities that you are less inclined to rule things out earlier. Mm-hmm. So 
a movie like Amore sort of like hangs around, a two, 2012's Amore from uh, Michael Haneke, sort of hangs around long enough that not only does it get a best director, not like I can see that in the old era as being a classic lone director movie, right? Where like yeah. the movie is remote and sad and European and all these sort of things that make it not a great candidate for best picture, but a great candidate for a director that is very respected. Um, and you want to sort of like give him his due. So like he gets the director nomination, but because we're dealing with that year, a top that year was a top um, nine or was that a full 10? That what year was that? Twenty twelve. That would be a nine that was a or nine. like eight. That was the first year, not of ten. That I was think? the second year. I think that was the second year because twenty eleven. No, because was the there were two surprise... years of a solid ten, and yeah. the first was two thousand ten. No, the first was two thousand nine. It was. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Because twenty eleven was the first year we're like surprise, it's extremely loud and incredibly close. We fooled you with um, right. with making you think design. that there were eight nominees. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. Twenty twelve was nine best picture nominees, and like that the fact that like Amor and Beasts of the Southern Wild showed up, and I think Beasts of the Southern Wild is a kind of movie I could see have being having been a best picture nominee in the earlier era because it is. Um, it's a narrative that appeals a little more broadly. I think it's it sort of like gets to it can get to your heart a little easier where mm-hmm. a more is it's a headier experience and but again because we're talking about an expanded best picture field that movie hangs around in the greater conversation long enough that people are like oh i'll put this on my ballot at like you know 5 or 6 or something like that well and, and i also it. think to, and i think a more is maybe a good example of this there's other things like i, I don't know maybe mad max fury road But I do think, like, we are in a time, and people don't really call it out for this, but, like, I think the Academy is willing to be more daring than it was in the decade before. Um, Yeah. So, like, I think that's also some of it, that we see less Lone Director nominations. Like, they're already making more daring Best Picture choices than they would have in the year, in, like, the early 2000s or the 90s. Yeah. I definitely think that's true. I think if you look at, yeah, I think any year really like bears that out. So because like there's there's still like threads of old logic of like what is considered and what is not considered an Academy Awards movie and like an Oscar movie that they'll go for and like you see it like this year with even something like Parasite where they're like that's not an Oscar movie. You saw it with like Get Out and Lady Bird. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Point. And like those things are are changing. Moonlight's a great example of that in terms of a movie that would have been dismissed as too small, you know, mm-hmm. not enough of a hook, that kind of a thing. And because for, you know, a lot of different factors, I think partly that the best picture field has expanded, partly that our horizons have expanded in terms of what is an Oscar movie. It it sticks around long enough and is able to build momentum because mm-hmm. that's a movie you could have seen as being a lone director movie in the early 2000s just because everybody's like, well, it's not a best picture, but... And then the directors sort of, like, remember that they liked it and they they like Barry Jenkins as a young talent. And, yeah. It's interesting. It's an interesting... It's one of those sort of, like, very peculiar Oscar phenomena that I find 
really fun to talk about. And it was especially fun to try and predict back in the days of five Best Picture nominees, especially. Where, like, I remember sort of the thrill of picking something like Almodovar for... Mm -hmm. I was going to say, it it could happen again this year that we have a foreign language nominee nominated in Best Director. And some of it is, like, the actual Academy demographic is becoming way more international. But I do think that, like, there's a chance that Almodovar could be nominated this year. For Pain and Glory. Yeah. Very good. He's very good. That that's a that's He's an excellent a, film. A wonderful man who makes lovely films. So um, this movie was released on Christmas weekend in 1994, and the critics really hated it. 24 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Ebert thought it should have been more biting towards the fashion community. I think other reviews, like Owen Gleiberman's was like, I don't understand what these jibes are at the. Um, fashion community because they seemed imprecise and he thought it was that the tone was nasty without seeming to have any reason for it. So like I think it sort of like got hit from all sides. I think the fashion community thought it was being very insulting. Karl Lagerfeld apparently had it banned in Germany because there's a point where (laughs) Forrest Whitaker's character says, calls Karl Lagerfeld a thief and um, I just think of Margaret Cho's stand-up bits about Karl Lagerfeld. Like, what if Karl Lagerfeld was a murderer? I'm just imagining him, like, slapping this movie with his fan. 24% on Rotten Tomatoes. Big old Christmas ham. Big old Christmas bomb. Um, Did get two Golden Globe nominations. One of them is more, I think, explicable than the other. Mm -hmm. I think we always talk about comedies as being its own sort of like little kingdom for the Golden Globes. This was nominated for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy because it is a comedy from Robert Altman. So it's like it's pedigreed. I can see why you can easily see where the Golden Globe nominators were. I mean, the comedy nominations that year, it's like it's a very short well. (laughs) Like they nominated Jim Carrey for The Mask. Oh, that's interesting. Wait, what were the Best Picture nominees, musical or comedy, that year? Lion King, Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, Pret-a-Porter, um, Ed Wood, and I love this nomination, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. That's a great nomination. Okay, that's not so bad, then. Um, it can't be all... Yeah, it's not a bad Best Picture lineup, but if you like dig a little deeper, they didn't really have great choices. Yeah. So uh, also, the other nominee for Pret-a-Porter was Sophia Loren getting a, you know, one of those you are a legend, so why not have this nomination supporting actress nod for, uh, or best supporting actress in a film opposite Diane Weist, who won for Bullets Over Broadway, who would go on to win the Oscar, as well as everything that year. She basically swept. And the other future Oscar nominee from this category was Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction. But the other ones are two actresses who I would have nominated that year, and I'm surprised that one of them didn't get in. I'm really, su- I'm always surprised that Robin Wright did not get a nomination for Forrest. And they Gump. gave it to Sally Field. No, they didn't. That Sally Field. Oh, was, but why do I always remember that nomination? She got nominated for it. something. It might have been SAG, but like not, definitely not Oscar. Um, but that no, that no, that neither one of them got an Oscar nomination is weird because the Oscars obviously were like head over heels in love with Forrest Gump. So it's weird mm-hmm. that the, those coattails weren't enough to bring along, I think especially Robin Wright, because she was such a, 
you know, everybody loved the Princess Bride by then, and so at this point she was such a, you know, ingenue made good, and her character is such a focal point of so much of that movie, and she has so many, like, clip-worthy scenes where she's, like, suffering beautifully and whatnot, and, um, I don't know, that would have been a surprise 90s loved that. And the one that I would have nominated and deeply, deeply wished had happened was... Kirsten Dunst for Interview with a Vampire. I watched that Hell again yeah. the other day. She's so good and so, so self-possessed in a way that doesn't feel child actory. It's that, mm-hmm. but also it's not quite, well, I don't know. I almost say, I want to say it's not quite that Dakota Fanning thing of like, you're almost unnervingly poised, but like Kirsten Dunst, the character she's playing accommodates a lot of sort of bizarreness or sort of uncanny valley in terms of um you're a child but you're not acting like a child so yeah uh i can't quite say that she's not quite in the dakota fanning zone but like if she is she's in it in a real sweet spot doing that and it's a great performance it's a great i love that movie me too can i also mention for sophia loren's supporting actress nomination this is also the year they gave her the cecil b DeMille award and it always feels like if they can nominate you for something when they're also giving you the cecil b DeMille, they will well that's good news for tom hanks this year for a beautiful day in the neighborhood i mean you can take that to the bank um that's interesting i would have thought that it would have been the other way around which is we're already giving you a demille award maybe we'll free up that slot for something else i mean didn't it happen for denzel i believe it happened for meryl yeah you're probably i right. mean those are two very specific cases but i'm sure there's more examples of the cecil b demille and a nomination happening yeah for other that's people true. that's true that's a good point um is there anything else we want to say about pret-a-porter before we move on to IMDb game shenanigans. Uh, I don't know. Um, I I think it's kind of in terms of Robert Altman. It is one of the forgotten Robert Altmans. The other thing about Robert Altman, I will say, is like that stretch of the player and shortcuts came after like a decade where yes. he was kind of ousted a in little bit. So it's yeah. like one of the other things about that. It was like it was a major comeback in a way that like had like decades of a foundation behind it. Yeah. Um, so like you can see why this would be seen as such a major disappointment because it, we thought that he was back to form. Um, well, and I'm glad that this didn't sort of send him off into another decade long wilderness. He comes back. Right. Pretty quickly from this, he makes. I've never seen the Gingerbread Man, although this movie made me it's really want to like jump back into Altman and like see a bunch of stuff. Um, I know Kansas City was critically appreciated, but like nobody I know has seen it. Like I never hear anybody talk about Kansas City. That, but that's one I'm intrigued to see. I really liked Cookie's Fortune. I thought Cookie's Fortune was very funny and very cute. Doctor T and the Women doesn't seem to be something that was too hugely acclaimed. But then like Gosford Park is not far around the corner like it's still mm-hmm. it's only like seven it's less than away. a decade away from Pret-a-Porter and, and Gosford Park is a real sort of like career crowning achievement for him although I do as we've talked about before I adore his last movie which is A Prairie Home Companion which I wanted to mention that too did some of the like more out of context storylines the, the you know the the Mastriani one perhaps or or anything remind you 
of the Virginia Madsen through line in Prairie Home Companion. Where Virginia Madsen is like the last thing I remember from that movie. Strangely, she's like the like the whatever the angel the death, of death sort angel, of like one, yeah, right. Where she exists outside of that movie and she doesn't really feel a part of it. But I think also that's part of what she's that character is supposed to do. That she's supposed to sort of like you know not exist among them, and then she sort of you know takes some people as she makes her way through the last show of this of this radio play um Mm -hmm. whereas i think she ends up fitting more thematically in that than than some of these parts in predaporte i don't know i love that movie i love prairie home companion so much yeah i want to watch that one again too um it's incredible but yeah i think that's maybe all i have i love richard e grant's spit curl (laughs) <laughs> that was very lisa stansfield right she was sort of a big yes, deal back was. at that time so gotta love that i like that after he and forrest whitaker made out and then their partners they caught their partners making out like right across from them and then kitty potter sort of walks onto that train set to like um interview them and richard e grant's lipstick is smeared from and he hides it with his hat from like forehead to to neck it's just like it's all over his face and he like tries to hide it with his hat but then cannot resist like throwing a cavalcade of like adjectives at um forrest whitaker to like praise his fashion just so it gets like on camera and it's it seemed very you know of that scene Richard E. Grant forever proving that the notions that straight performers should not play gay people is misguided because he always so does a wonderful job playing gay men. <laughs> He's so good at it. I love it. Yeah, it's fucking fruitcake time, man. Like that's Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, would you like to explain to the listeners what the IMDB game is as we close out our show? Absolutely. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of these titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, just like Pret-a-Porter's. A free-for-all of, I don't know, fashion? Fashion, movie stars, whatever. Yes. Lighten um, up, it's just fashion. Lighten up, it's just fa- <laughs> I did think of Project Runway quite a bit in this, and I would have loved to have seen Michael Kors flitting about in this in this movie. Yeah. It would have really improved my mood, I think. It looks like she's wearing a fucking diaper. <laughs> Little Abner. She's literally pooping fabric. I love love Michael Kors so much. Lighten up, it's just fashion. Do you want to guess first or do you want to give first? Um, I will give first. How about okay. that? How about it? All right. So we're talking about a Robert Altman film. You sure. Um, are. and there's like some Robert Altman returning people. However, one noted person who does not return that is famous in the Robert Altman canon, Miss Lily Tomlin. <sighs> Okay. All right. Ah, oh, it's a good one. Um, Lily, Miss Lily. Lilian Tomlin. What's her like? Uh, nine to five. Nine to five, yes. Okay. Um, we'll see if Disney lets us watch that, because that is a famous Fox movie. Uh, Grandma? 
Grandma, yes. yes. Okay. I thought she'd get something recent. All right. Well, Nashville. Nashville, you're on a streak, my friend. Okay. Can you get a perfect score? Lily Tomlin. She's been in so many different kinds of things. Okay. Oh, shoot. Well, now Remember, I'm stuck. Remember, I did not say there was any TV, so there's no Grace and Frankie. Okay. I'm sort of stuck on two. I'm either... Is it Shortcuts or is it Huckabees? And it might be neither, and that's maybe my two strikes. Um, but I want to try and get four for four. Does she have two Altman? Would you have given this to me if it was two Altman? Huh. Trying to game your system here. I was mostly just, like, thinking about her in Pret-a-Porte. I'm like, it makes sense she's not here, because where would you fit her in? However, that's precisely why I want her in there. I want her playing something ludicrous in this movie. I think if you Or, like, have Lily her Tomlin be in interviewed movie. by Kim Basinger. Be like, Lily Tomlin Lily Tomlin's like... here! <laughs> oh, as, like, herself. That's interesting. I think she could have played yeah. a very interesting like fashion maven sort of like really costumed up to the hilt i think she would have done that very well okay um enough stalling i'm just gonna say i heart huckabees you just got a perfect score congratulations yeah i love it oh proud of you tomlin proud of me too i've been having a rough go of it good good for me okay i am also lately been terrible the um Robert Altman Root, and actually a co-star of Lily Tomlin in a movie we just discussed, and I just talked about her character specifically, uh, uh-huh. a Prairie Home Companion star, Virginia Madsen. Aha! Her smell star, Virginia Madsen. Yes, very true. Um, <laughs> capture me shuttling into the sideways, I like to think about the grape monologue, but like I like to think about her smell. <laughs> How many people have died? <laughs> uh, um, well, obviously, sideways. Obviously, yes, correct. Um, hmm, Virginia Madsen. I'm willing to bet that there is not a lot of post-sideways stuff on here, because her post-sideways career has been a bit sad, it's a d- bummer. disappointing. She, it's yeah, a bummer. she deserves better. She does. Um, so I'll say Candyman. Correct. Candyman from 1992. I should have sang it in my Christina Aguilera voice. Candyman, Candyman. Um, uh, Arrakis is a desert planet. Dune. (laughs) Dune is, yes, correct. 1984. So you are three for three. Uh, Okay, those are just the Virginia Madsen movies I can remember. (laughs) Oh, well, wait. Is a Prairie Home Companion on there? No. That okay. was one strike, so you did not sweep like I swept. See, that's a that's a post sideways. That that would make sense to me. Yes. Um, <sighs> I will say the fourth one is a really hard one to get. Like I I do not blame you for struggling on this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember literally anything else. Um. I mean Virginia Madsen. I just, uh, I mean, I can't think of anything. Wasn't she, wasn't she in a movie with, like, Billy Bob Thornton? Probably. Where she, like, played a wife 
What was that movie? It has a stupid title. Um, I'll look it up. It's not. It's not that. But um, I'll look it up. Okay. Well, then I'm not guessing. <laughs> don't guess. Don't don't try and figure it out because it's not that. Uh, um. Mm. I mean, I may just like try to get the year, and I'll say her smell. Yeah, not her smell. The year is 2009. Oh, so it is post sideways. It is, but it's also it does what not it does not contradict doing? your sense of. A disappointing post sideways career for Virginia Manson, I will say. Right. Um, what the heck was she doing in two thousand nine? Good question. Uh, this movie apparently is it. Is it like uh, not a spy movie, but like is she playing a bureaucrat? No, she's not playing a bureaucrat. You're maybe thinking of Firewall. Okay, but that is not this movie. And it's, is it even 2009? Um, no, that movie is 2006. Um, is she like a mom? I have not seen this movie, but I would guess, yes, she is a mom. Uh, and I think her child is in distress, maybe, or her family is in danger. Is it a horror movie? It is a horror movie. And it is okay. a very sort of like, uh, not quite generic title, but it's like a very perfunctory kind of a title oh so it's gonna be like the ghost or like the watched or but something like the blank in blank like it's like very generic. the door in the floor <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what if that was a horror movie about a haunted door in a floor um <laughs> no it's like it's like the first it's like it's the, the blank someone not making a sound the blank is very generic and then like in blank makes it very specific but like to... Oh, it's like um uh it's a it's a, the 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 haunting in Connecticut. Correct. It is the haunting in Connecticut. Stupid. I dare anybody out there to have seen the haunting in Connecticut. I I it. might have, but really? like I dare anyone to remember right. anything about that movie. Right. Fair enough. Stupid. Stupid. Anyway, rent her smell on iTunes. Definitely uh. rent her smell on iTunes. <laughs> it's so good. Um her, her, her smell would have been an interesting movie as directed. Obviously, Alex Ross Perry did a very good job with that. But like as directed by Robert Altman, just to have all of that I mean, chaos in those rehearsal scenes as, you know, Altman overlapping. Like, have we talked about on this podcast the um, Robert Altman honorary Oscar presentation by Meryl Streep and yes we have it's wonderful it's, what episode did we talk about that I don't know must have been a Streep episode maybe yeah or something but like it's so delightful it's such like everything you want the Oscars to be where it's like celebration it's like I loved that that presentation assumed that you knew what they were doing by doing this, like, Altman-esque overlapping dialogue, and they didn't have to, like, mm-hmm. hold your hand. He just starts to film, and we watch the dailies, and, and at some magical point... Film just starts to wake up to him, to itself. That's yeah. what, and you see... You and you, see, you say, oh, I see, I see something's happening. Yeah, but usually you don't know what it is. <clears throat> no, but, but Altman does, because well, otherwise it wouldn't so. be happening. 
And his movie-making style just does seem to enhance our capacity to take in more sounds and more, more images than layered. we ever knew we had the process, the ability to process, you know, because the movies just seem to have a different metabolism than other movies. It, 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 he, well, he's always been ahead of the curve. He, he just, he, he just kind of... And he's able he to capture the curve densely on layered, film with floating cameras, extended zooms. Incredibly living, almost like they came from a parallel universe. And uh, well, to some moviegoers, it seems as if the popcorn they'd just yeah. been munching had suddenly turned into peyote buttons. <laughs> oh, it's just wow. Uh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> so, well, no, I mean, just no, figuratively if, if, speaking. If, if you, yes. And be like, now we're gonna do a thing that like Altman's movies do, where they where the dialogue overlaps. They just sort of jump right into it. And they're both so funny together. And obviously they were, I think this was, I think this was before Prairie Home Companion had come out, but like yes. just before they had already. Well, because he had passed away after it came out. Right. So they right? had already, I think they had already made the movie. Well, let's see his honorary Oscar. I'll look this up really quickly on IMDb. Honorary Oscar was at the 2006 ceremony, so at the 2005 Oscars, the one where Crash. So Prairie Home Companion was about to come out. So Prairie Home Companion would come out that year, and he died um, November 20th of 2006. So yeah, so he died within the next year of him getting this honorary Oscar. And this was back when they would do the honorary Oscars on the Oscars. I am of two minds on that. I know everybody really complains a lot about taking the honorary Oscars off of the Oscar telecast and putting them in the Governor's Awards. And it does feel like you're shunting off these like great pieces of Oscar history out of sight, out of mind from the telecast in order to help the telecast be shorter and more, you know, appealing to younger audiences, whatever. And like, that sucks. But I also appreciate the fact that with the governor's awards, these people are able to give these like really long and satisfying acceptance speeches. And I think we've gotten some really good ones and like fewer people see them obviously, but I think the Mm -hmm. people who want to see them seek them out or like they come across them on their Twitter timeline when, you know, the day after or whatever. (laughs) David Lynch's speech was great. He, like, basically said thank you, and he said, you have very interesting taste. <laughs> Find the lie. Uh, not untrue. But, like, like for as like great as Spike Lee's Oscar acceptance speech was this past year when he won for Black Klansman, his Governor's Award speech from a few years ago was, like, so much longer and so much more, like, there was some meat on that bone, and it was, like, mm-hmm. it was really fascinating and interesting. And I think you get, with the Governor's Awards, you get, like, you know, four really good presentations and speeches and whatever. And I think trying to fit those all onto an Oscar telecast that is more and more about hustling people on and off of the stage. I don't know. There's something I think there's some benefit to having the governor's awards the way that they are. What do you think of that? I mean, it, they, uh, yeah, it, it's frustrating that there wasn't a readily available live stream of them at the very least. I also kind of feel like I think with the honorary Oscars they're trying to push the academy into a mindful direction, especially like what you the um Gene Herschel award for Gina Davis and they also honored Lena Vertmuller today like 
if that was on the actual telecast this year where they honor Lena Vertmuller, um, famously the first uh, directed of uh, the first best director nomination nominee that was female. And like this year where they have many opportunities to nominate very worthy female directors, if they don't, that would have been very embarrassing. And they might not. I'm already I'm already still might so not. militant about if Greta Gerwig doesn't get nominated for Little Women. Now famously I have seen Little Women and it's a new life for me. It's a new it's a new era for me post Kevin's <laughs> Little Women. And I am famously saying that we should be talking about Lorene Scafaria's accomplishments with Hustlers and talk about that movie beyond Jennifer Lopez. So. We should also be talking about Marielle Heller for Marielle Heller, who made probably the smartest movie that I've ever seen about how to cope with male rage. Um yeah, yeah, this is a really, really, really great year for films directed by women, and I'm very worried that we're going to end up getting all of them shut out so that we can once again celebrate Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino. Um, I mean, I I love The Irishman, so it's like it's not necessarily that. Like, I'm I'm somewhat mild on the Tarantino, but anyway, go see A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood this week. Support Mariel Heller. Support Mariel Heller. Yes, support good cinema. It's a great movie. And that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chris V File. That's F E I L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. And I also write regularly for the film experience. Thank you. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Both of those cases, Reed is spelled R E I D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five star review in particular really helps us out with visibility on Apple Podcasts, so step up to the mic and be our own personal lyrical gangsters. We promise to love you like that. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. <laughs> Total fruitcake. <laughs> it's a fucking fruitcake out there. It's a fucking fruitcake out there. It's the that. it's the old and the new and the new and the old and <laughs> she's genuinely fantastic. So good. I'm so glad we came up on the same page on that at least. So yeah. She's our Brittany Murphy and riding in cars with boys of oh like my I guess God. if you want to call this season two. Yeah, that's it. That's all. That's our episode. And what do we say? We say, if you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check. Sorry, I'm just going to start over. <laughs> we should have translated all of this like standard copy script that we have into, into French, French for this episode. We should have. Wait, can I try that really quickly in like Babblefish or something like that? <laughs> Hold on. I'm sure it'll come out like. Je suis episode. How do you say this had Oscar buzz in French? That is our episode. Uh, um, the other thing is I don't know how to do uh, French accents, but fine. All right. All right. 
Et c'est notre episode. Si vous voulez plus de This Had Oscar Buzz, vous pouvez consulter les Tumblr à thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Vous devriez aussi suivre notre compte Twitter. Wow. Let's not do that. That At sounds Ed underscore Oscar underscore <laughs> Booz. Now we're just sound like Pepe Le Pew. Um, et c'est notre episode. Si vous voulez plus, plus, I imagine plus, de this had Oscar buzz, vous pouvez consulter les Tumblr à thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Vous devriez aussi suivre notre compte Twitter. Let's try that. Okay, that sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> Follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, uh, we, you can uh, find me. Um, uh, I am Chris Fayel. Uh, you can find me on the Twitter oh um, at uh, Chris Fayel. That's F-E-I-L. Uh, I also write regularly for the film experience. I'm just going to put in the, like, boingy, 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 like, Pepe Le Pew music after this. (laughs) Ma chérie. Um, Now I'm going to start speaking like the the pigeon at the beginning of uh, An American Tale, (laughs) where he goes, this is Christopher Plummer, right? My little immigrant. That is America. Um, (laughs) I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. I am also on Letterboxd as as also Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. We have fully gone round the band at this point. Like, don't subject us to a movie as bonkers as Pret-a-Porter again, because truly, I will end up talking like Henri the Pigeon at the beginning of An American Tale, and Chris will be Pepe Le Pew bouncing around your podcast apparatus a less problematic pepe le pew thank you well you'd almost have to be um yes we would like to thank kyle cummings uh how do we thank kyle cummings we say merci merci kyle merci kyle cummings for your fantastic artwork and dave gonzalez and kevin mevius merci to you both too for your check for their guidance technical (laughs) that is all for this week merci but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz we, oui. we, oui. truly. Je suis garbage. What a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs>